Section 6 of On Chronic Alcoholic Intoxication, with an Inquiry into the Influence of the Abuse of Alcohol as a Predisposing Cause of Disease, by William Marset. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Treatment of Chronic Alcoholic Intoxication The treatment of a chronic disease is usually attended with much difficulty, and a long period will generally be required to effect a complete cure when such an end is attainable. I have succeeded, however, by a simple method and within a comparatively limited period in restoring health in cases of chronic alcoholism of the severest description. The treatment is to be considered under two heads. The patient must first be induced to give up the habit of drinking, unless he has done so previously, and, the inordinate desire for alcoholic stimulants having been subdued, the next point is to arrest the disease. It is usually considered that the habitual use of spirituous liquors becomes so inveterate as to defy all control. In the following case, related by McNish, bears upon the subject. A gentleman accustomed to drink to excess answered to the exhortations of a friend. If a bottle of brandy stood at one hand, and the pit of hell yawned at the other, and if I were convinced I should be pushed in, as surely as I took one glass, I could not refrain. I have observed, however, that when health is evidently giving way from overindulgence in spirituous beverages, drinking is often given up spontaneously, or, at all events, considerably diminished. By consulting the analytic table, the reader may notice that in the case of W.H., case 7, J.T., case 13, E.C., case 15, L.M., case 17, G.R., case 18, C.P., case 21, J.H., case 30, and others, the allowance of spirituous beverages had been spontaneously diminished, or altogether stopped, long before applying for medical advice. In these instances, the patients stated that they had given up excessive drinking because they considered their health was suffering from it. When the habit of drinking has become inveterate, I have invariably found it of great importance to begin by obtaining the full confidence of the patient. Dr. Trotter, describing the means of checking this pernicious habit, observes, When the physician has once gained the full confidence of his patient, he will find little difficulty in beginning his plan of cure. This confidence may sometimes be employed to great advantage when your regime is in danger of being transgressed, for frequent relapses and promises repeatedly broken. In such situations, render the physician's visit a work of great trial to his patients. This disease, I mean the habit of drunkenness, is like any other mental derangement. There is an ascendancy to be gained over the person committed to our care, which, when accomplished, brings him entirely under our control. It will be necessary to begin by impressing upon the patient's mind that he is really suffering from the habit of drinking too much, and that it is of no use to commence a medical treatment unless he be decided to abstain from spirituous stimulants or, at all events, diminish considerably his usual allowance. If he appear ready to act according to this advice, it will be desirable to inquire into the cause of the abuse, and remove it, if possible. Should an individual drink from habits of indolence, let him exercise his mind and body. If another drinks to drown dull care, let him have amusements. If intemperance results from frequenting bad company, let such acquaintances be dropped. If spirituous liquors taken as a preservative against cold, let the clothing be increased, and a more nutritious solid diet taken. But, as Roche observes, the inordinate desire, passion, for drink becomes itself a cause of drunkenness. For when the body has accustomed itself to spirituous liquors, it can no longer do without them. In such cases, little can be derived from an attempt to stop the cause of intemperance, and other means must be adopted. McNish relates the case of an individual in Maryland, much addicted to drinking who hear one evening a noise in his kitchen, and, on opening the door to ascertain its cause, found his servants laughing at the exhibition of a young negro who was engaged in mimicking his master under the effects of liquor. 
This comic scene produced such an impression on him that he was never known to be drunk again. Dr. Picairn is reported to have cured a Highland chieftain by obtaining from him a promise that he would drop a little sealing wax every day into his whiskey glass, when, after a time, the sealing wax having filled the glass, he could drink no more. A gentleman, to wean himself from drinking, used to add a glass of water to his bottle for every glass of Hollands he took out, till at last the drink got so insipid that he could no longer go on with it. An American physician, Dr. Cairns, taking advantage of the nauseating properties of tartar emic, has advised this drug to be mixed with the patient's drink, but this process is condemned by Roche, who observes that the trick will soon be found out, and drink procured that has not been previously medicated. Tartar emic has, besides the disadvantage of acting injuriously on the patient's health. There is in every class of society a number of persons who, although they do not become intoxicated, suffer from chronic alcoholism, from drinking more spirits, wine, or beer than agrees with their health. Most of these persons lead a useful and active life, and apply for medical advice, being quite unaware of the cause of their illness. Many in the upper ranks of society are thus seized with symptoms of chronic alcoholism. The habit of indulging freely in wine at frequent dinner parties, of drinking wine at lunch, of taking occasionally a glass of wine between meals, or of sipping every evening two or three glasses of sherry and water, or brandy and water. The usual good living at the officer's mess or at the clubs, the custom which exists for commercial travelers, not only of using freely stimulants at dinner, but also of offering wine to their customers when transacting business and finding, of course, an equal pleasure in these potations. All these various circumstances, and many others besides, are quite sufficient to bring on an attack of chronic alcoholism when an individual is predisposed to the disease. Drinking is not usually, in the cases, an indomitable habit, and accordingly, the patient will gladly give it up if he feels certain that by doing so his health can be improved. A general opinion is very prevalent that an individual whose health suffers from the habit of drinking to excess may invariably cure himself by taking to sober his habits, or giving up drink entirely. And it is with this end in view that many are induced to join temperance societies. I beg to state, however, that this idea is fallacious, which is shown not only by Dr. Carpenter's opinion on the subject, which I have already reported, page 33, but also by my having brought forward a certain number of instances where patients supplied to me for advice subsequently to their having partly or entirely given up the habit of hard drinking. It is consequently necessary in many cases after putting an end to the habit of drinking to excess to adopt an active medical treatment. The nature of the diet to be recommended will vary according to circumstances. In general, those suffering from chronic alcoholism have little or no appetite. The first step in such cases is to begin by relieving this symptom and then recommending a nutritious and easily digestible food such as broth, sweet bread, carefully roasted meat, provided it be lean, on account of the secretion of bile and pancreatic juice being probably much below their usual standard. Strict attention must be paid to this part of the treatment, as an insufficient and unhealthy kind of food undoubtedly predisposes the body to suffer from the morbid effects of the long-continued habit of indulging to excess in spirituous beverages. And, on the contrary, a healthy, nutritious diet is well known to be beneficial. With respect to the use of the alcoholic stimulants, if the patient has completely given them up for some time and entirely lost his taste for liquor, I have been in the habit of recommending about a pint of beer daily to be taken at meals, but in so doing much care is required, 
as some patients, who formerly could drink hard without being the worse for it, become liable to be easily affected by alcoholic beverages, even of the mildest description. The reader need hardly be reminded that tea and coffee are excellent substitutes for alcoholic drinks, which they resemble, not only by their stimulating powers, but also the remarkable property of diminishing the waste of the body. Footnote. See the appendix. End footnote. Thus affecting an indirect process of nutrition. In certain countries such as Norway, where many district alcoholic drinks are seldom to be attained, I have observed coffee and milk to be extensively used, both as food and in the place of beer and spirits. But, although tea or coffee may be resorted to as beverages, they cannot be introduced to dinner instead of beer or wine. Many do not like soda water. Toast and water is unpalatable. Such beverages as lemonade are unpleasant when taken with solid food, and no choice therefore seems to remain but to drink pure water, which, although insipid at first when taken by those who are in the habit of drinking beer and wine, soon becomes agreeable and refreshing, especially if ice cold. We shall now proceed to inquire into the therapeutical treatment of the morbid condition of the body described in the preceding pages. Chronic alcoholism is not to be cured, like delirium tremens, in the course of a few days, for although under an appropriate treatment, a marked improvement may in most cases occur after a short time. A much longer period will be required to restore the patient to perfect health. Magnus Huss has derived very satisfactory results from the treatment of chronic alcoholism with fusel oil, fusilol or fermentilium solanani, given in the form of pill with althea root footnote. The prescription used by Dr. Huss is as follows. R. fermentatole solanani, radix althei pulverate, and miscellaneous e. serupti althei. Two pills are to be taken six times daily. End footnote. It has observed this medicine to diminish considerably the trembling, uneasiness, formications, and feeling of weakness. He has found opium useful, especially when given with the view of checking the formications. Footnote. Formication, a peculiar sensation, as if the skin was being pricked with needles. End footnote. Twitching of the muscles, cramps, and convulsions. But he has not noticed this drug to relieve the patient from the nightly hallucinations, and considers it as contraindicated in cases attended with delirium during the daytime. He alludes to camphor as having the property of allaying the nervous uneasiness, tendency to delirium, and the occurrence of hallucinations while endeavoring to fall asleep. He also recommends camphor as a means of checking the giddiness and faintness. It is to be given in doses of from 1 to 5 grains. He has obtained good results from the use of arnica, flores arnicae, when having been cured of the trembling and formication. The patient still complained of a feeling of weakness, accompanied with dullness of the mental faculties, noises in the ears, and the appearance of flying specks when in an erect position. He has recourse to medicines containing iron when others fail in their action. Finally, us often makes use of spirituous fluids, prescribing a glass of brandy to be taken twice daily, or a daily allowance of two glasses of port, or as much sherry, or three or four tablespoons, as lawful of tinct, absinthe, or tinct, synchonae. He prescribes sometimes forty or sixty drops of spirituous etheris sulfurisi, ether spirituosus, to be taken twice or three times a day, or a half bottle of porter to be drunk in the forenoon. I have tried the effects of opium, carbonate of ammonia, preparations of iron, bitters, and other medicines which were attended with more or less benefit. 
and in cases where the digestion was disordered, opium has been administered with very good results. Besides my finding it very useful in bringing on sleep in one or two cases where oxide of zinc had failed to produce this result. I have not often observed bitters and iron to be beneficial at the outset of the disease, but the patient being in a fair way of recovery, steel and quinine have proved a great service. In some cases, attended with headache, considerable relief was obtained from the application of a small blister to the back of the neck. If, however, chronic alcoholism be considered as depending on a peculiar disease condition of a certain part of the body, owing to the action of a poison, no remedy can be looked upon as decidedly efficacious unless it exerts its power not directly on the symptoms themselves, which are but the signs of the illness, but on the principle of the disorder. Bearing this in mind, I have endeavored to discover a treatment which, by acting immediately on the nervous system, should remove its disease condition, the result of the long-continued abuse of alcoholic stimulants, thereby acting as a means of arresting the symptoms of the illness. I am consequently not about to recommend one remedy for a certain symptom, and another remedy for another symptom, but shall endeavor to show that there exists a substance possessed of powerful and definite medicinal properties, and having the remarkable property of restoring to health, or at all events, of greatly relieving the disordered nervous system of persons suffering from chronic alcoholism. The medicinal agent in question, acting efficaciously in cases where the principal symptom may be either sleeplessness, or hallucinations, or trembling, or any other, and this substance is oxide of zinc. I shall first proceed to give an account of the action of oxide of zinc on the human body in health and in disease and then show how powerful an agent it is for the cure of the particular complaint of which we are treating. Physiological Properties of Oxide of Zinc This subject has been ably investigated by Dr. Michaelis of Tübingen, Dr. Bouchut de la Roche, Dr. Herpin of Geneva, and others. Oxide of zinc, although very sparingly, if at all soluble in water, is readily dissolved in the acid secretion of the stomach. Considering it of great importance to ascertain how far gastric juice dissolved oxide of zinc, I have undertaken inquiry on this subject, any of the particulars of which I shall not, however, enter on the present occasion. The result obtained was that gastric juice mixed with burnt or anhydrous oxide of zinc, its usual form when employed medicinally, and exposed to the temperature of the body, was nearly neutralized in the course of an hour. The conclusions from two of these experiments may be expressed as follows. Gastric juice, first experiment 100 parts, second experiment 100, oxide of zinc dissolved, first experiment 0 0.143 parts, second experiment 0 0.117. Oxide of zinc which might have been dissolved, first experiment 0 0.169 parts, second experiment 0 0.123. Consequently, such doses as from 2 to 10 grains of oxide of zinc are readily soluble in the gastric juice secreted after one meal. According to the experiments of Michaelis, the metal finds its way into the blood, bile, and urine. Four hours after the injection of a salt of zinc into the crural vein, the bile exhibited evident traces of zinc. It appeared in the bile previous to being eliminated from the body with the urine. The gentleman also observed, from experiments upon animals, that large doses of oxide of zinc produced erosions and ulcerations of the mucous membrane of the stomach, and that it may induce within the organs of respiration granulations analogous to miliary tubercles. Moreover, he believes that long-continued use of moderate doses of oxide of zinc interferes with digestion, producing anemia 
and marasmus. He found the blood of dogs taking oxide of zinc to contain 0.99 or nearly 1 per 1,000 of fibrin instead of 1.92, the normal proportion. Dr. Beauchute, on repeating the experiments of Michaelis, succeeded, however, in giving a strong rabbit doses of from 5 to 10 grains of oxide of zinc without inconvenience to the animal. Footnote. Etude sur la lactate de zinc dans epilepsie parle Dr. Herpin. End footnote. Dr. Herpin, after a long and careful series of observations on the effects of oxide of zinc upon the human body, has arrived at the following conclusion. Footnote. Du prognostic et du traitement curatif de l'epilepsie, 1852, page 565, and footnote. That it is a perfectly harmless remedy, and may be given in doses of as much as 6 grams, or 90 grains, a day, for a very considerable time, without producing any other inconvenience than temporary uneasiness. That its physiological effects are confined to a mild action, action legere, on the intestines, consisting usually, in the case of adults, of nausea which may occasion vomiting, and in the case of children, of slight diarrhea. That the medicine is easily to be tolerated without discomfort, by beginning in the case of adults, with 4.5 to 6 grains a day, and in the case of children, with from 1 to 2.5 grains a day. These quantities being divided into three or four doses, and then giving every week from 2.5 to 3 grains more daily to adults, and from 1 to 2.5 grains more daily to children. That the form of pill is sometimes a means of enabling its being tolerated. Finally, that the uneasiness occurs less frequently when the medicine is taken an hour after a meal, that when fasting, and that the first dose in the morning is always that which is attended with the most discomfort. It appears that since Dr. Herpin wrote his valuable treaty on epilepsy, he has slightly modified his opinion respecting the first of his conclusions. For in a paper entitled Etudes sur la lactate de zinc dans epilepsy, published by him in 1855, he observes that after a long continued use of oxide of zinc, when it has been taken to the extent from 120 to 473 grains, or 1800 to 8000 grains, Unfavorable symptoms may occur, young women being more especially subject to suffer in such cases from anemia and chlorosis. The symptoms, however, only acquiring some degree of importance when the treatment has been persevered in for one month after the first appearance of the unfavorable effects. I am confined myself in the researches on the action of zinc on the human body, to the use of the metal under its form of oxide, because this substance, in order to be absorbed, must necessarily enter into combination with the acid secreted by the stomach, whether it be hydrochloric, lactic, or phosphoric acids. It is but reasonable to believe that under this form, zinc is more readily absorbed, and is more likely to exert a beneficial action than if administered under any other form. Since the publication of my first edition, I have also prescribed, somewhat largely, carbonate of zinc dissolved in water by an excess of carbonic acid. This fluid has every appearance of soda water, when containing about a quarter of a grain of oxide of zinc to the ounce, it is nearly quite tasteless. Indeed, the solution would readily be taken for soda water by anybody, not aware of its composition. A stronger solution merely leaves a slight metallic aftertaste, which is lessened by the effervescence due to the excess of carbonic acid. 
It is hardly possible to conceive that any of the metal can be absorbed in the state of bicarbonate. The salt is evidently decomposed in the stomach, and the metal passes into the circulation precisely under the same chemical form as if administered as oxide. Footnote. I have undertaken, in conjunction with Mr. F. Dupree, Ph.D., an inquiry into the solubility of oxide of zinc in water under the atmospheric pressure, and we have found that one ounce of this solution contained exactly 0.517 grains of oxide of zinc. End of footnote. I have obtained the following results as to the physiological action of oxide of zinc. 1. That after taking the substance in doses of from 2 grains and upwards in the case of adults, a feeling of nausea is sometimes perceived, but seldom to the extent of vomiting. This effect is diminished if, according to Dr. Herpin's practice, the medicine be given about an hour after a meal. 2. That after preserving with the treatment for some days, the medicine is in most cases tolerated, and the nausea and uneasiness produced at first diminish and even disappear. 3. That a slight giddiness attended with the appearance of black specks before the eyes and rumbling noises in the ears may accompany the nausea occasioned by oxide of zinc. This is an indication of the doses being too high, and on diminishing them, these symptoms disappear. 4. A very important remarkable effect of oxide of zinc is the power it frequently possesses producing sleep. 5. I have not noticed the long-continued use of oxide of zinc to produce evidently deleterious effects, even after it has been taken for a considerable length of time. The feeling of nausea and sickness occasioned by preparations of zinc appear to vary, to a certain extent, according to the form of the compound, for we are informed by Dr. Herbin that lactate of zinc is not so likely to be liable to this inconvenience as the oxide. The fact of oxide of zinc producing less uneasiness when taken after food is obviously owing to its state of dilution in a full stomach. Dr. Herpin has also observed that oxide of zinc is better tolerated when taken under the form of a pill, which may be accounted for by assuming that the substance is dissolved in the stomach, under that shape less rapidly than under that of powder. It must be remembered, however, that oxide of zinc made up into pills may altogether escape absorption, and for that reason I prescribe it frequently as a powder. Some years ago, a female outpatient of the Westminster Hospital who was taking pills of oxide of zinc in confection of roses, brought me a hard concretion she had removed from her motions. I found it, on examination, to be one of the pills taken, which had consequently escaped absorption. It is very questionable whether the whole of the medicine is absorbed when given in large quantities, for it is remarkable to what extent the doses may be increased with impunity. I have frequently prescribed as much as 20 grains of this substance to be taken twice a day, and in two cases of epilepsy, the dose was raised to 35 grains twice a day. With respect to the mechanism of its absorption, it is dissolved principally by the gastric juice and also by the free acid of the juice of the meat contained in the stomach. And this is an additional reason for giving this medicine shortly after meals, when the gastric juice is secreted in large quantity. The fats of the meat taken also very probably combine with it especially the fatty acids derived from the neutral fats of the food. The conversion, more or less, fat into fatty acids being a phenomenon I have shown to take place invariably during digestion. Footnote. Proceedings of the Royal Society, June 1858. and footnote. And both McChevreul, footnote, Chevreul sur les Gracies, and footnote, and M.M. Genel and Monzel, footnote, a paper read to the academic de Medicine, November 3rd, 1857, and footnote, 
have observed that fats enter into combination with metallic oxides forming a peculiar kind of soap. It is not a little remarkable that oxide of zinc should in some cases produce the very symptoms it is intended to cure, namely giddiness and faintness, and for this reason it should not be given indiscriminately. As a general rule I have found it objectionable in chlorosis, and with females on a weak constitution. In some cases of hysteria I have also been obliged to withhold it from its being decidedly objectionable. The following is a case in point. C.G., age 26, complains of headache and giddiness. Previous to her marriage six years ago, she had been subject to fainting fits, but since then the affection had not returned. She was treated with small doses of oxide of zinc, and about five minutes after taking the first dose, she felt very sick and fainted. After taking a second dose, she fainted a second time, remaining unconscious for two or three minutes on each occasion. Sometimes, though rarely, an apparent increase of the existing symptoms will occur in cases of chronic alcoholism treated with oxide of zinc, but on diminishing the dose, the unfavorable symptoms at once disappear. The property of oxide of zinc, of frequently producing sleep, a power it appears to possess exclusive to all other metals, is very remarkable. I have observed this phenomenon, not only where oxide of zinc was given for the treatment of chronic alcoholic intoxication, but also when administered in other cases. A gentleman taking oxide of zinc for Korea complained of his feeling so drowsy after dinner that he was obliged to go to sleep every day at that time, greatly to his discomfort, as he boarded with the family and was much annoyed at this apparent breach of sociality. W.S., aged 11, treated with oxide of zinc for Korea, experienced great drowsiness every evening at half-past eight o'clock, although he had never before felt sleepy at that hour. Another male patient, aged 52, taking oxide of zinc for the treatment of vertigo and headache, stated that since he had begun the powders, he felt very sleepy, and could sleep all day long. W.J., age 75, case 5, taking oxide of zinc, is reported as sleeping from 1 till 3 o'clock p.m., although he never slumbered so long before in the daytime. E.B.K. 6 became very sleepy in the daytime since taking the powders. W.H.K. 7, treated with oxide of zinc, has observed that he feels very sleepy in the daytime. When sitting to read, he falls asleep. He was never in the habit of sleeping in the day before taking the powders. J.W. Case 11 states that the powders of zinc oxide make him feel drowsy. He falls asleep about one hour after taking them, and sleeps for an hour. Had not previously been accustomed to sleep during the daytime. This effect of oxide of zinc cannot possibly be owing to any narcotic property, such as that of opium or allied substances. It appears to me to be due to its power of allaying a morbid state of excitement of the nervous system, and consequently allowing the patient to sleep. Or in other words, oxide of zinc does not produce sleep by a direct process, but by removing the cause which prevents it. If this view be correct, it will follow that, when the administration of oxide of zinc in chronic alcoholism attended with a feeling of drowsiness, and an improvement in the sleep, its effects are thereby shown to be highly beneficial, which is fully borne out by experience. The following case illustrates the difference between the action of opium and oxide of zinc. The patient had taken large doses of opium, according to this statement, for checking diarrhea, but also obviously for the purpose of mitigating the effects of alcohol in the nervous system. He succeeded more or less at first, but after a short time the drug lost its beneficial influence, under these circumstances, he experienced great relief from a treatment with oxide of zinc. S.W., age 26, a hawker, called on me at the Westminster Hospital as an outpatient on the 15th November 1860. 
Complains of a dull pain in the left temple, shooting from the eye to the ear. Has been a very hard spirit drinker, which he kept up for the last ten years, although he has drunk less for two or three months past. Finding that hard drinking brings on invariably diarrhea. With the view of checking this effect, he had recourse to opium. At first he succeeded in checking the diarrhea, and he slept under the influence of the drug. But now it no longer stops the intestinal affection, neither does it exert its soporific powers. He has never been a sound sleeper since he first took to drinking. He suffers at present from great nervous uneasiness, and is subject to musquet volentantes, although not to hallucinations. Was ordered to take two grains of oxide of zinc twice a day, and I warned him of the importance of giving up completely the habit of drinking. This patient called again at the hospital on the 23rd of November, having derived great benefit from the medicine, although he did not act up on my advice as to leave off drinking. He stated that the powder's oxide of zinc had removed completely the uneasiness he had been subject to and strengthened his nerves. In answer to my inquiries, he observed that he had on several occasions found much relief from the assuming temporary habits of sobriety, but never with the rapidity experienced on the present occasion. From the frequent necessity in cases of chronic alcoholism to continue giving oxide of zinc for a comparatively great length of time, it is important to make sure that this medicine cannot act as a slow poison, such as many other metals do, for instance, mercury and lead. Indeed, as previously observed, it would appear from Dr. Herpin's experience that unfavorable symptoms show themselves in certain cases from a protracted treatment with this metallic oxide. I have observed, however, that when the medicine acts unfavorably, as is sometimes the case with young and weak females, and especially those suffering from chlorosis, the patients are very quickly affected by the drug, offering consequently no opportunity of examining the result of a long-continued treatment. I have given oxide of zinc in a great number of cases for several months without producing any dangerous or even evidently inconvenient symptoms. The following are instances of this kind. M.R., age 24, admitted under my care as an outpatient of the Westminster Hospital, October 1855, is suffering from epilepsy. She began the treatment on the 27th of October with six grains of oxide of zinc twice a day. Footnote. I am in the habit of commencing the administration of oxide of zinc with no more than one or two grains for a dose. End footnote. The dose being rapidly increased till the 15th of December, when she took no less than 35 grains of oxide of zinc twice a day. My notes of this date state, had a fit on the 13th, which was not severe. Looks pale and feels giddy. The symptoms are probably owing to the fit the patient had two days previously, and not to the zinc. The dose of 35 grains was perhaps rather large, but, as will subsequently be seen, if it produced paleness and giddiness, these symptoms were but transitory. On January 16th, the dose had been gradually reduced to 10 grains. By the 9th of February, it had been again increased to 22 grains twice a day. On the 20th of February, she was taking... 15 grains twice a day, and she continued with that quantity till the 5th of April, having taken large doses of oxide of zinc for four months and a half. She had evidently benefited from the treatment, as on the 2nd of April the following note of her case occurs in my notebook. Continues to feel quite well, no return of the fits. In the next case, the patient persisted in the treatment with oxide of zinc for a much longer period. H.J., age 35. Admitted as an outpatient on the 26th of May, 1855, and suffering from epilepsy. He began, on the day of his admission, 
with one grain of oxide of zinc twice a day, which was increased gradually to the 5th of December, when he took 35 grains twice a day. On the 12th of December, I recorded the following state of his case. Feels quite well, no return of fits, showing at least that this enormous dose of oxide of zinc had produced no ill effect. He continued taking from 15 to 20 grains of the drug, with an interruption of a few days, and sulfate of zinc was tried. Till the 5th of July, 1856, having been for nearly 14 months under the treatment of oxide of zinc, and, at all events, none for the worse for the medicine. Footnote. I remember having heard this patient complaining of a slight loss of memory, but it was not possible to ascertain whether this symptom depended on the epileptic fits or on the oxide of zinc. And footnote. The following case is less remarkable as the oxide of zinc was not taken for so long a period as in that of H.J. It is, however, well calculated to show that this medicinal agent does not act as a slow poison. R.M., admitted as an outpatient of the Westminster Hospital on January 16, 1856, suffering from incessant trembling of the right arm. This patient began with one grain of oxide of zinc twice a day, the dose being gradually increased till the 24th of February, when he was taking 14 grains of the oxide twice a day. On the 1st of March, 10 grains were prescribed for a dose, which he continued taking till the 14th. After this date, the dose was gradually raised to 20 grains. This he continued taking from the 19th of April to the 16th of May, having consequently been treated with large doses of oxide of zinc for four months. The trembling had much diminished under this treatment, and no new symptom had occurred. Consequently, the medicine had certainly not produced any injurious effects. Many more cases might be reported, if necessary, showing that the long-continued use of oxide of zinc as an internal remedy is attended with no evident evil results. End of section 6